0: Welcome back to Right Men for the Job. I'm your host, Ross May. We're going to talk about some people I just zoomed by in Road to Ghostbusters. Here are three important behind-the-scenes people that the production of Ghostbusters usually does not cover. We'll start with producer and talent manager Bernie Brillstein. Born in New York in 1931, he got a job working at the William Morris Agency as a young man. We'll be talking a lot about talent agencies today. When Bernie started there, William Morris was the talent agency. Founded in 1898, William Morris represented Charlie Chaplin back in the day. By the time Brillstein was working there, some of its biggest stars included Marilyn Monroe and Elvis Presley. Actually, Brillstein met Presley, but he never represented him personally. But we're zooming by almost two decades of him working there. He left William Morris and started a management company with two other men, then moved out to L.A. and struck out on his own with the Brillstein Company. One of his big hits at the time was managing the singing group, the Doodletown Pipers. Records: Jim Neighbors, Glen Campbell, the Doodletown Pipers, now look at her records! They stink! In 1969, he founded the Brillstein Company. Now I mentioned this briefly last episode. What does a talent manager do? Well, in theory, the idea is purely to advise on business opportunities. Yes to this deal. No to this deal over here. Yes to this one, but ask for more money. That's it. In his book, Where Did I Go Right?, Brillstein even admits that he would probably have not succeeded only acting as a manager. Early on when he was struggling, he solicited producers and venues to hire his talent. I mean, the real word here is he hustled. He got actors and writers work, which you might notice should be the job of a talent agent and not a manager. But things get even murkier. Bernie would ask what a creative person wanted to do, an actor or a musician or a director or any other role, and then Bernie would go out to production companies and studios, maybe get funding and TV space, and make the project happen. A valuable role, but maybe sort of a malleable one between a full-time studio producer and a manager, and sometimes even an agent? If you look at Bernie Brillstein's IMDB page, you wouldn't even get a full picture of everything he helped bring to fruition because he's not actually credited as a producer on everything he, frankly, produced. I mean, early on in life of the Brillstein company, he helped make Hee Haw happen. He actually named the show, What a Feather in Your Cap, huh? I'm the man who named Hee Haw. Welcome to Hee Haw, starring Buck Owens and Roy Clark. He was very amused that he was a Jewish man from New York and he helped make Hee Haw happen. One of Brillstein's clients back from his time at William Morris was Jim Henson. If you go on YouTube and see old black-and-white commercials featuring the Muppets, like Wilkins Coffee, or Purina Dog Chow starring Rolf the Dog, Brilstein booked many of those commercials for Jim Henson. Henson and Brilstein were good friends, too. Once, Jim Henson made a Muppet version of Bernie and gave it to him as a gift. Bernie was there to help sign the deal that made Sesame Street happen, but another project that Henson really wanted to see through was a variety TV series for the Muppets. (laughs) (laughs) Listen. They must have brainwashed him. <laughs> <laughs> it's time to get things started on the If you didn't know, in the early 70s Henson had the idea for the Muppet Show, but TV executives weren't biting. It finally all came together in 76, thanks in part to Brilstein's faith in Henson and always trying to sell crazy Muppet projects. If you want to say something nice about Bernie Brilstein, maybe one of the nicest compliments you can pay him is that he believed in Jim Henson and the Muppets for years when few others did. Bernie Brilstein knew Henson and the Muppets could be a big hit, and he never gave up on them. But hey, let's take a sidestep to another show with a Muppet connection. Or a rainbow connection, if you will. Brillstein also managed a young producer from Toronto named Lorne Michaels. In 1974, NBC saw that it was going to need new programming for Saturday nights, and there was Lorne Michaels, backed up by Bernie Brillstein. It wasn't a sure thing, by the way. Michaels and Brillstein both had to really work at NBC brass to convince them the show would take off, even during its first year on air. But this gets better. In the book Live from New York by Miller and Shales, Brillstein tells the story of how it was right before airing on the first night, October 11th, 1975, and John Belushi had still not signed paperwork with NBC. So an executive was telling Belushi he wouldn't go on air without signing. This was down to the wire with minutes before the show started. But Bernie Brillstein is walking by and he hears this, and Belushi knows this is Lorne Michaels' manager. John Belushi asks Bernie, Hey, should I sign this? And Bernie lies and says, Of course you should sign it. I wrote the effing contract. (laughs) And he was just lying. Bernie just said that to end the problem. Well, Belushi says he'll sign if Bernie will also represent him. Bernie says, sure, without really knowing who John Belushi was at the time. Eh. I'm not sure if Belushi was the first SNL actor Brillstein represented, but many of them quickly signed up with him. Dan Aykroyd, Gilda Radner, Chevy Chase. Honestly, I don't even know how many. Not Bill Murray, by the way, though Bernie would sometimes like to obscure this detail by lumping Bill Murray in with a list of his actual clients and Brillstein's association with SNL and his cast would continue his entire life. Later on, he'd manage Martin Short, all the way to John Lovitz, Dana Carvey, Mike Myers, Adam Sandler, Chris Farley, David Spade, Phil Hartman, Chris Rock, and beyond. So Bernie was always a part of Saturday Night Live. Tying two threads together now, you might already know that original Muppets appeared on the first year of Saturday Night Live, and that the SNL cast and writers did not like having the puppets around, most of them were very rude to Henson and Frank Oz and the rest, actually. You might assume from what I've told you so far that it was Brilstein's idea to have them on SNL, but according to his memoir, Where Did I Go Right?, Bernie says it was actually NBC's people's idea. And then it just didn't really work out on set. The union rules also meant that the SNL staff were writing most of the skits and jokes for the Muppet crew to perform, but of course Henson and his crew would have been better at making the material themselves. Not to mention that the SNL writers were openly rude and hostile to the whole idea. Hey, just as we're leaving the Muppets behind, I mean, we have to. This podcast isn't about the Muppets, I'm afraid. But after Jim Henson's death in 1990, in large part it was Bernie Brillstein who made sure Henson got a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, so that's very sweet. Those two were close friends in addition to being in business together. Have you ever seen video clips of Jim Henson's memorial? Like, the saddest, the most poignant celebrity memorial ever? Bernie Brillstein is the speaker who followed after Big Bird singing. Bernie even joked that he can't follow up that tearjerker of an act, which is pretty funny and everyone laughs. But Jim inspired people to be better than they thought they could be. To be more creative, more daring, more outrageous, and ultimately more successful. And he did it all without raising his voice. That whisper will stay with all of us, for a long time. Now we'll just have to listen a little harder to hear it. <clears throat> Ahem. So a quick summary again. Bernie Brillstein started out as a talent agent in New York at William Morris, moved out to Los Angeles in the 60s, and founded his own agency, The Brillstein Company, in 1969. He changed what he did from being a talent agent to a manager, which usually meant not really getting actors' roles in existing projects so much as making original projects happen. Two of his biggest, or at least most memorable, concerns were Jim Henson, then Lorne Michaels and much of the SNL cast. So let's stick with those SNL people. In 78, Brillstein got Atlantic Records to produce the first Blues Brothers album, Briefcase Full of Blues. Of course, Brillstein represented John Belushi for talks to do Animal House, and then Brillstein represented the Blues Brothers movie project, complete with John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd attached, to Universal. This is getting us into packaged deals. Oh man, I'm going to save describing the ins and outs of packaged deals for our next biography today. But yes, Brillstein had bumped into movie productions before, but up until the 80s, he was really someone who worked in television. And I believe Blues Brothers was the first time Brillstein was ever an executive producer. He brought a lot of what makes Blues Brothers too universal. I mean, not creatively, but in terms of representing Ackroyd, Belushi, and the concept of the Blues Brothers, Bernie is this stereotypical Hollywood wheeler dealer. That's not me slamming him, by the way. Everyone agrees Bernie Brillstein was a really friendly guy, a real mensch but his very function was to make deals happen, to get a cut for his clients and for himself. And from Blues Brothers on, that increasingly meant making himself an executive producer on movies and shows. Oh, and an aside, remember this from Blues Brothers? Would there be anything else? Yes, do you have a Miss Piggy? (laughs) Eh, It's a good joke, but that specificity of holding Grover and asking for a Miss Piggy? Bernie Brillstein was not above planting an advertisement for one thing, inside of another thing. In this case, advertising Muppet Toys, which yes, he did get a cut of, in the Blues Brothers. Speaking of making deals happen, right after Blues Brothers, Brillstein took his clients to talent agent Mike Ovitz at CAA. This would later prove to be a hostile relationship. And a reminder, Brillstein was advising his talent, while Mike Ovitz was the person responsible for finding this same talent work. The fact that both Bernie Brillstein and Mike Ovitz operated with packaged deals in Hollywood, and again, I do promise I'll explain packaged deals in a moment, but the fact that both these men operated like this goes to show how confusing these business relationships can be. Their goals often overlapped, but they weren't working in unison. But shifting gears for a moment, I mentioned this in Road to Ghostbusters, but in March of 1982, Bernie saw John Belushi the day before he died. Twice, actually. John hit Bernie up for money, and Bernie knew it was probably for drugs. When Bernie relented the second time, it was during a meeting they were both having with Michael Eisner about John Belushi's future movie projects at Paramount. The next day, Bill Wallace, a friend and an employee of Belushi, found Belushi's dead body. He called Bernie, and Bernie was then the one to tell Dan Aykroyd over the phone. I don't think a lot of people know about this, though. Bernie was also the person to accompany John Belushi's body on a flight from L.A. to Martha's Vineyard for the funeral. Bernie flew in a private jet provided by Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers owned Atlantic Records, which released the Blues Brothers albums, so someone at Warner wanted to do Belushi and Brilstein a favor. So Bernie accompanied Belushi's body, but the private jet was so small a big casket would not fit in, so Bernie actually flew with his friend's body in a body bag, both sitting in passenger seats. I'm not saying this to be gruesome. I just want to illustrate more that here was Bernie Brillstein, who got to spend hours with the body of his client and friend, thinking of all the things he wanted to say and do to try to save him, but now it was too late. Let's zero in on Ghostbusters, everybody. Dan was developing his idea, and he told Bernie about it. Now here's something not often reported. Bernie actually purchased the idea, the project of Ghostbusters, from Dan for one dollar. This was so Bernie could then take Ghostbusters around to studios and do his usual thing of selling it. I mean, it worked for Blues Brothers. And here's where business dealings get a bit murky again. See, you would think Brillstein would be a driving force in making Ghostbusters happen. He says he sent it to Universal, and they passed. Listen to me talk about this in Road to Ghostbusters, because I'm a bit unsure if it ever actually reached John Landis. Regardless, Ghostbusters wasn't going to happen at Universal. I'm going to quote Bernie Brillstein from his book, Where Did I Go Right? This is from the bottom of page 231, class. Mm Mm-hmm. Quote, I can't say for sure what happened next or how, except that somehow Ivan Reitman, the eventual director, got the pages. My bet is that Ovitz was the conduit, since he also represented Reitman. Then it got to Bill Murray, also an Ovitz client, thanks to me, who had arranged that little introduction between the two at Ovitz's request. End quote. Me cutting in here now, that's not true about Bill Murray. Mm Mm-hmm. Now moving on with page 232. Quote, Ovitz had a movie package, which he sold to Columbia. I signed on as executive producer to watch out for Danny. I also got paid. Otherwise, Ovitz did little to keep me involved. I don't think Reitman really wanted me around, and Ovitz sold me out to cozy up to the director. End quote. And jumping ahead just a bit, quote, the director and his line producers run the show, and executive producer is never high on the respect list. Ovitz's exclusionary tactics still bothered me, but I didn't want to make too much out of it. No one has to tell me twice that they don't want me around. End quote. I don't want to sell Bernie Brilstein short. He did a lot of great work for Jim Henson, and The Muppet Show and movies to follow might never have happened without him. Ditto for Saturday Night Live at NBC. But when you see Bernie Brillstein's name as executive producer on Ghostbusters and think, oh, he must have been instrumental, well, let's call a spade a spade. No, he was not. He still believed in Dan Aykroyd, but this is almost a story of Bernie being lucky because Dan sold him Ghostbusters for a buck. Agent Mike Ovitz is really more instrumental on the business side of things. Bernie wasn't the one to approach Frank Price at Columbia. In his book, Bernie Brillstein says he made over $6 million on the Ghostbusters film. That's incredible on a $1 investment. By the way, I crunched the numbers. Depending on what total he was using, from 1984 or 85, Bernie owned anywhere from 1 to 2.5% of Ghostbusters. And his little cut included the sequels and cartoons. That means toys and everything. This will become relevant later on. Yes, he was an executive producer on Ghostbusters 2 and an executive consultant on The Real Ghostbusters, which just meant collecting paychecks. He was also an executive producer on future Dan Aykroyd projects, Spies Like Us, and Dragnet. Bernie also managed Paul Fusco, better known as ALF. Hey, remember ALF? Bernie was always looking for new opportunities, and in 1986, the people at Lorimar Telepictures offered him a job and in 1987 installed him as CEO of their motion picture division. But what to do about his management firm, the Brillstein Company? Hey, why not sell it to Lorimar Telepictures, the company he was now working for? So he did just that, and selling his company netted him $26.5 million. Okay, I'm not done with Bernie Brillstein yet we're not on a new topic so much as a parenthetical. This also has no bearing on the production of Ghostbusters, but it's still informative about media companies in the late 80s. Lorimar was founded in 1969 as a TV production company. They produced shows like Dallas for CBS, you know, the highest rated show on TV for a while. Lorimar merged with a company called Telepictures, and in the 1980s Lorimar Telepictures pivoted to being a leader in family-friendly sitcoms. Perfect Strangers, Family Matters, Full House, Step by Step, the miniseries of Stephen King's It. Okay, that's not quite as family-friendly. Does feature kids, though. If you watched the end of these shows, you see the Warner Brothers logo and probably assumed, oh, these were always Warner Brothers productions. But no, they were by Lorimar Telepictures. Warner Brothers was just the bigger company they usually worked with for distribution. They had a really good relationship. Lorimar also got into the movie business, though their bread and butter was always television. But they produced movies like The Postman Always Rings Twice, An Officer and a Gentleman, The Last Starfighter, Dangerous Liaisons, which Bernie was instrumental in making happen, by the way. Lorimar's final film was The Witches, based on the Roald Dahl book. Hey, did you ever wonder why Jim Henson's people were involved with making The Witches? Or why Kenner real Ghostbusters toys feature prominently in that movie? Bernie Brillstein loves to wheel, deal, and advertise everybody. Go ask your mom and dad for the real Ghostbusters firehouse playset, kids. So just keep this in mind. In 1986, Lorimar Telepictures had Bernie Brilstein come in and run their film division. He was happy to do this and remember that he sold his management company to Lorimar Telepictures. That was in 1986. We only need to fast forward to 1989 for things to change. I mentioned you'd see the Warner Brothers shield at the end of a lot of Lorimar productions. This relationship between Lorimar and Warner Brothers was so good, it made sense for Warner to buy Lorimar outright. And that's what happened. In 1989, Time Inc. and Warner Brothers planned to merge to create Time Warner. That was the big news that year. And looking back, people generally overlook that at the same time, Warner also pictured Lorimar Telepictures. So there was this concerted effort to consolidate around this newly merged Time Warner, which made sense. By the way, for you animation fans, I think a lot of you are vaguely aware that the Time Warner merger is what made Warner Brothers own cartoons like Thundercats and Silverhawks. See, that wasn't the Time Warner deal, that was from the Lorimar deal, from them being purchased. Animation studio Rankin Bass had originally been independent themselves, and they were purchased by Lorimar Telepictures. When Time Warner bought Lorimar, that included some, but not all, but some of its library of stop-motion and cartoon holiday specials, and right up to the Thundercats. Huh, interesting. So that's why the Thundercats are a part of Warner Brothers and can meet the DC superheroes or the Looney Tunes if they want. Anyway, Time Warner now owning Lorimar also meant Bernie Brillstein's services were no longer needed. He was disappointed. Correction, he was royally pissed off. Oh well, it wasn't personal. After only three years as a movie executive, he wanted to go back to his talent management company, which still existed, but the Brillstein company was now owned by Time Warner. But he wanted to go independent again with it. Hey, there was a solution... Time Warner was willing to sell him back his management company. In fact, since he was getting millions in severance, he was still coming out ahead even if he bought back the Brillstein company from them. But Time Warner's executives weren't fools. For Bernie to have his company back, the Brillstein company would need to give up its stake in ALF, which kind of made sense since Warner now owned ALF along with Paul Fusco. But, Warner wanted something else very valuable. The Brillstein's company's small cut of the Ghostbusters pie. This really stung Bernie, but after a year or so, he gave in to get his company back. That's right, everybody. Because of this deal, today Time Warner owns something like 1-2.5% to 2.5% of Ghostbusters. It's been this way since 1990 or 1991. And hey, think of the 2016 Ghostbusters movie. Warner Brothers earned at least $2 million on that movie and they had nothing to do with it. And people talk about the Ghostbusters 2016 movie not being a success, but it's still a pretty sweet little deal for Warner Brothers Just collecting on what Sony does now with Ghostbusters. It's weird, but it's true But back to the past Lorimar hung on for a few more years in the 90s inside the Time Warner machinery, but its fate was sealed Warner had Lorimar's library of successful shows had the talent they needed and then they just folded everything into being a part of Warner Brothers outright There's one last part I want to mention, and this is another part relevant to Columbia Pictures. So you know the Warner Brothers lot in Burbank, right? With the water tower? It's time for Animaniacs, and we're zany to the max. Yeah, that place. What you might not know is from 1970 to 1990, Columbia Pictures co-owned that lot with Warner Brothers. Yeah, they shared production space. The Ghostbuster movie sets, including Gozer's Temple, were filmed on that Burbank lot. When Time Warner was formed in 1990 and had bigger plans for themselves, they asked Columbia Pictures to stop being their roommate. Hmm, but Columbia still needed their own studio. Hey, wait a minute! Lorimar Telepictures owned their own studio lot. An historic lot in its own right, too. It used to be MGM studio lot before Lorimar purchased it. So here was a game of musical chairs. Time Warner now owned two countem two studio lots. So they gave a deal to Columbia Pictures to vacate their Burbank lot and move into the one that had previously been occupied by MGM and Lorimar. And Sony Pictures is still on that lot today in Culver City. It's where Ghost Court is and where they keep Ecto 1, not to mention Film Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune. It's funny to think that it also happens to be where for a few short years the Ghostbusters executive producer Bernie Brillstein also had an office. Huh Okay, let's finish up with Bernie Brilstein the man. So, for three short years, 86 to 89, he was the movie division's head at Lorimar Telepictures. And remember that he had sold the Brilstein Company to Lorimar for $26.5 million. But whoa, 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 hold the phone. During this time, that meant Lorimar, a Hollywood studio, owned a talent management company. Isn't that a conflict of interest? What's to stop the Brilstein Company from advising its clients, hey, Act in this Lorimar show. Hey, produce your movie through Lorimar. Why would they send them anywhere else? If you ask Bernie Brilstein about this, nah, that would never happen. And in his book, he writes this off as no big deal. Never mind that this is what happened with Alf. Bernie represented Paul Fusco, aka Alf, and had that go to Lorimar. Bob Saget and Dave Coulier signed on with the Brilstein Company, and sure enough, they start in full house, produced by Lorimar. Yeah, Bernie wasn't always above board. I find this interesting. Dan Aykroyd actually noticed this conflict of interest, and it bothered him. He went to Bernie and said, Look, I don't think it's right that you're in charge of Lorimar, and Lorimar also owns your management firm. We're still friends, but I can't have the Brillstein Company manage me now. Wow, I'm impressed with Dan. This is why suddenly after Dragnet, Bernie Brillstein was no longer an executive producer on Dan's movies outside of Ghostbusters 2. In the 90s, when Bernie was no longer in charge of a studio, Dan would eventually sign back on with him, but Bernie wouldn't executive produce any of his movies in the future. Okay, we're finally done with Lorimar stories and its repercussions. Bernie was bumping along great in the 80s, with hot acts like SNL and The Muppets and ALF, but he felt he wasn't in touch with what younger people wanted. Enter Brad Gray, a manager in his 20s, who brought in new talent like comedian Gary Shandling. Bernie Brillstein and Brad Gray became very good friends and worked well together, so they partnered up and renamed the company Brillstein Gray Entertainment in 1992. Hey, all of you comedy nerds, Brillstein and Gray made Mr. Show happen, as well as the sitcoms News Radio and Just Shoot Me, plus many more. In 1996, Bernie sold his shares in the company to Brad Gray outright. Bernie stayed on with the company and managed people, but he wasn't calling the big shots anymore. And Bernie made it to the age of prestige television. Okay, Bernie did not produce The Sopranos himself, but his partner Brad Gray did. Bernie even made a cameo in a 2004 episode of Sopranos playing himself. It's a pretty good joke because he's introduced at a mob card game, and in real life Bernie admitted his biggest vice was excessive gambling. You know what? I could go into even deeper detail on Bernie Brilstein but maybe we'll call it there. Bernie Brilstein was a real Hollywood personality, jovial and out to make killer deals. He married three times over his life, had kids, and died at the age of 77 in 2008. Some of the people he represented at the time of his death and who also attended his memorial included Jennifer Aniston, Bill Maher, Lorne Michaels, and much of the old SNL crew. The Blues Brothers, Dan Aykroyd and Jim Belushi, performed at Bernie Brilstein's memorial. And Kermit the Frog, performed by Steve Whitmire, sang Rainbow Connection. Why are there so many songs about rainbows and what's on the other side? Rainbows are visions but only illusions and rainbows have nothing to hide. Let's talk about another giant of Hollywood, Mike Ovitz. Born in 1946, he's a fraternity brother of Beta Zeta Tau, same as Harold Ramis. In fact, both Ovitz and Ramis were born to Jewish families in Chicago, two years apart, so they might have run into each other except for the fact that the Ovitzes soon moved to California. And hey, another little fact we will all care about, starting in 1965, Mike Ovitz was a tour guide for a few summers at the Universal Studios lot. At... When in Universal, you can ask for Babs, and Mike Ovitz, I guess. Ovitz graduated from UCLA and joined that fabled talent agency I've already talked about, William Morris. But Bernie Brillstein was already independent by then. While working at William Morris, Mike Ovitz married his wife, Judy Reich, in 1969. But Mike Ovitz wouldn't stay at William Morris for too many years. Ovitz and four other agents got together and struck out on their own with Creative Artists Agency, or CAA, in 1975. They set up in small offices, and for a time they asked their wives, including Judy, to act as receptionists. This small-time act did not last for long. Even though there were five co-founders total, Ovitz really ended up being the first among equals. I mean, in the 80s, he was the president of CAA, and owned half the shares of the company. That important tidbit comes from a New York Times article by L.J. Davis in July 1989, by the way. You might be asking why Mike Ovitz became the most powerful talent agent at CAA. Well, he wasn't. No, for a time, he was the most powerful agent in all of America. How did he amass this power? With packaged deals. Packaged deals were not an entirely new concept, and I've touched on them already with Bernie Brillstein, because for years, they were accepted in television but studios had always called the shots for their own movie productions. Okay, a short history lesson. Way back when, movie studios had a lot more power, they'd have directors and actors under contract, and you could put a movie together mostly using the employees you had. That had largely been broken up after 1948 with the United States v. Paramount Pictures' antitrust lawsuit. Okay, okay, point being, actors and directors were largely free agents from the 1950s onwards. They could go it alone, or get any agent to represent them, and try to get the best deal in Hollywood. But the genius, or deviousness, of guys like Bernie Brillstein and Mike Ovitz was packaging projects, and then presenting them to TV and movie studios. By the 1980s, Mike Ovitz was an agent with power to rival, or even exceed, movie executives. Who were some of his clients? Martin Scorsese, Cindy Pollock, Dustin Hoffman, Madonna, Tom Cruise, Barbara Streisand, Sean Connery, basketball star Magic Johnson, author Michael Crichton, not to mention the principal Ghostbusters players we've been talking about, Ivan Reitman, Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, and Harold Ramis. Hell, after years of being friends, he got Steven Spielberg as his client in the 90s. Think of that kind of power and influence in Hollywood. True, he didn't have his own movie studio, But what if you were a studio and you wanted Tom Cruise? You wanted the top directors and actors, and CAA had most of the biggest stars. You'd better not piss off Mike Ovitz. If Bernie Brillstein was this old-time Hollywood wheeler-dealer, a man from a bygone age who had even a foot rooted in vaudeville, Mike Ovitz was a shark, the new 1980s alpha predator of Hollywood boardrooms. So, he's Jaws. Makes sense, working with Spielberg. You might be asking now, How did Ovitz attract all of the biggest talent? Well, when starting out, not throughout his whole career, but just when starting out, he and his fellow agents at CAA took lower cuts upfront from their clients, typically 6% off salaries when the industry standard was 10%. Now, why'd they do that? Well, first off, to attract the talent, but also remember those packaged deals. Mike Ovens wouldn't end up supplying one director or one actor to Ghostbusters. He supplied most of the principal talent. So take all of their salaries combined, and then he gets 6% upfront of those salaries. Plus, there's a cut off the back end. That back end was up to the industry standard, around 10%. It's a bulk discount compared to Rivals, but CAA still came out ahead from collecting on multiple people. By the way, from the actors and directors' perspective, packaged deals gave them a lot of leverage, because of course they could demand even greater salaries or percentages off box office grosses. It also helped them to get leverage on who they wanted to work with. Time and again, executives have been saying, Harold Ramis? Eh, we don't really see him acting in this movie. But if you wanted Bill Murray and Ivan Reitman, and they're saying they want Harold acting in Stripes, acting in Ghostbusters, you have to say yes to them as a group. So that's good for the team. It's good for unity. So what are the downsides to packaged deals? If you're not signed with the right agency, you might not get to play ball. Bit of a dated example now, but let's say you've been writing for Criminal Minds for years, but now you think you'd be a good fit on a CSI show. Ooh, sorry, talented scriptwriter. Those are staffed by two different agencies, ICM and CAA, respectively. These productions can be fiefdoms for the talent agencies, and you signed on with a group that's locked out of the other. By the way, I just used Criminal Minds and CSI as examples, but I have no inside knowledge about that actually happening on those productions. That said, this sort of thing does happen. If you have a favorite show or movie, look up if some of its stars are all signed to the same agency. You can quickly figure out if an agency has a lock on a certain production. I mean, that's largely what happened with Ghostbusters. Hey, Okay, let's get to one little piece of trivia before really getting back to Mike Ovitz himself. Let's talk about actor John Candy now. Candy, who was a friend to all these creative Ghostbusters people, remember, was slated to play Lewis Tully. You can see John Candy is even drawn into the Ghostbusters storyboards. It has been suggested that since John Candy wasn't represented by CAA, maybe that's a contributing factor to why he didn't get the part. Personally, I think there are other reasons, which we'll get to another day. But my main reason for thinking this is because Sigourney Weaver was represented by Sam Kahn of International Creative Management, or ICM, out of their New York offices. Ivan obviously loved Sigourney so much that he was able to overcome any casting obstacles to get her, which immediately makes me think he could have had John Candy in Ghostbusters if he thought it was going to work. Now let's get back on track and talk about Mike Ovitz, starting in the early 80s. Ovitz saw Ivan Reitman's film Meatballs and thought it was very funny. He knew he wanted to represent both Reitman and Bill Murray going forward. Ovitz met with Reitman, and this is an amusing story from Ovitz's memoir, Who is Michael Ovitz? So Ovitz and Reitman meet, and Ovitz was giving him a standard sales pitch on what CAA could do for Reitman's career going forward. Reitman shot down all of his comments, saying not without reason, that he'd made it this far without an agent. Ovitz figured, well, too bad, I guess I can't get him. Later, Ovitz spoke to Ivan's lawyer about how it was unfortunate that they couldn't reach an agreement, and the lawyer goes, what? Oh no, Ivan really liked you. He's ready to sign on. It turned out Ivan had an even better poker face than the best agent in Hollywood. Oh, and I wish I knew this detail back when I covered Stripes. Okay, Meatballs had been purchased by Jeffrey Katzenberg when he was at Paramount, but then Reitman would do Stripes and Ghostbusters over at Columbia Pictures. Of course, people move around, but I never knew the reason why Ivan didn't do his next film for Paramount. It turns out the reason goes back to Reitman's original pitch for Stripes, and it being a Cheech and Chong army movie. I knew Reitman took the idea to Cheech and Chong's manager, but I never knew the idea was also forwarded to Paramount at the same time. Paramount CEO Barry Diller said no to Stripes when it turned out that Cheech and Chong's people couldn't reach an agreement with Ivan Reitman. So Paramount said no to Ivan Reitman's next movie, which would turn out to be Stripes. Ivan's recently hired agent, Mike Ovitz, said that they should pitch it to Frank Price at Columbia Pictures. And I like this, Frank Price was probably the studio head Ovitz respected the most at the time. Ta-da! Mike Ovitz's preference for Frank Price helped us get Stripes and Ghostbusters. I like learning this, how personal connections do inform how multi-million dollar deals get made. We'll get to Frank Price in a little bit, but it's telling. Reitman did Stripes and Ghostbusters for Columbia Pictures because Ovitz said that they should work with Frank Price. Once Frank Price was fired from Columbia and became chairman over at Universal, Reitman did his next several movies for Universal, starting with Legal Eagles. Ivan, with guidance from Mike Ovitz, followed an executive they trusted from studio to studio. They followed an individual, not a company, which I find kind of reassuring. So there, that's why certain Ivan Reitman films were Columbia Pictures, and then he switched to Universal. Let's check in on some actors and how they signed up with Mike Ovitz. I've already mentioned, after Blues Brothers, Bernie Brillstein sent his managed clients to Mike Ovitz. This included John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd. Brilstein would later complain about this, that Ovitz was often rude to him, and never did any business favors for him in return. I understand Bernie's point, especially about the anecdotes of Ovitz being rude. The best example was after Brilstein took the job at Lorimar Telepictures. Ovitz was incensed that Brilstein didn't inform him about his move beforehand, as if this was any of Ovitz's business, and Ovitz was the literal king of Hollywood. Ovitz invited Bernie Brillstein and some Lorimar people over to CAA's offices, and Bernie thought that maybe this was an olive branch? Instead, Ovitz instructed everyone at CAA to just not speak to them. Just a real passive-aggressive move to demonstrate that they wouldn't send any work to Lorimar. By the way, that's a story Mike Ovitz owns up to and sees as a perfectly normal business move and not, you know, something childish and vindictive. I definitely think Ovitz was wrong there, but there are other times where I see things from his perspective. I mean, Ovitz made the Ghostbusters deal happen, and would get further work for Dan Aykroyd, which also meant more commissions for Bernie. Bernie was complaining about Mike Ovitz even before his time at Lorimar, but what was his problem when Ovitz was getting work for their mutual clients? From Mike Ovitz's perspective, all Bernie had to do was sit in his office and he'd get paid. I got sidetracked there into their contentious relationship but I was talking about Mike Ovitz's clients. Here's something I didn't know for the longest time. In his memoir, Ovitz says he also saw his client, John Belushi, the day before Belushi died. He gave Belushi some money, same as Bernie Brillstein. Oh dear, just to give you an idea, Brillstein had a closer relationship with Belushi than Ovitz did. Just to round out talking about the Ghostbusters actors, I don't know how Harold Ramis and Mike Ovitz met. It was probably just a simple matter of being a smart business decision for the both of them. Mike Ovitz sparred with plenty of people, but he also became good friends with a lot of actors. It sounds like Dustin Hoffman and Paul Newman were especially good friends with him. But it sure sounds like his best pal in all of entertainment was Bill Murray. In the early 80s, Bill wasn't signed on with anyone, so CAA set its sights on him. Ovitz read up on Bill a lot. He was tactical that way in approaching every client, and learned how mercurial and difficult Bill could be, and he figured his standard sales pitch wouldn't work. But he goes to New York, and he gets in touch with Bill, thinking they might meet at a restaurant or something. Bill tells him on the phone, meet me at Grant's Tomb. That's still in New York, but it's pretty darn unusual. So Mike got over to Grant's Tomb, found Bill Murray, and they spent the whole day walking. Of course, Bill jumped from topic to topic, and Mike went along with him and never brought up business until very late in the day. You'd think these two guys wouldn't get along. Mike Ovitz was almost all business. In his book, Ovitz admits he was the consummate overworker, studying up on clients and rivals all the time, micromanaging employees' habits. But for reasons nobody knows, perhaps not even Michael himself, Bill Murray really took a shine to him. And you think that wouldn't happen, Bill hating authority and being casual to the extreme? So it's interesting that these two polar opposites got along, with Mike enjoying Bill's antics and willing to go along with him on rambling trips around New York. Speaking of, when Bill was filming Where the Buffalo Roam, he and Hunter S. Thompson once broke into Mike Ovitz's hotel room at 2 in the morning. So Mike wakes up with a start, (gasps) and finds two men at the foot of his bed. What? Bill, is that you? And Bill tells Mike to get dressed, and they're going out partying so they take him out to bars in the wee hours in the morning, this straight-laced executive who didn't do drugs and almost never got drunk. Mike Ovitz and Bill Murray stayed friends even after Ovitz quit being an agent. You're familiar with how Murray doesn't have an agent today, but just a phone number with an answering machine and he'll periodically check? Yeah, he wasn't always like that. He liked his agent, Mike Ovitz. But after Ovitz retired from show business, Bill Murray figured he wouldn't go with anyone else, and he hasn't had an agent since 1995. In 2018, when Ovitz was promoting his book, Bill Murray was the person he asked to interview him at the book launch in New York. Google Bill Murray and Mike Ovitz's names, and you might find the video of their conversation on stage. Okay, we've covered how Mike Ovitz operated, and how he knew the Ghostbusters crew, so let's finally talk about the Ghostbusters production. Really quickly again, Dan Aykroyd had his early Ghostbusters draft go through CAA to Ivan Reitman. Ivan asked Mike Ovitz to set up a meeting with Frank Price at Columbia. Frank Price said yes very quickly to the $25 or $30 million budget, which remember was a big request for a comedy. Everything was a go, with the only sticking point being Bill Murray and his intense desire to film a new version of The Razor's Edge. Mike Ovitz had to go meet with Frank Price, possibly with Bill in the room, and finalize that agreement. Yes, Bill Murray would star in Ghostbusters, but only if Columbia also did Razor's Edge. Even that had an extra wrinkle, because Bill refused to sign paperwork holding him to account. If I was Frank Price, that idea would really rattle my nerves, financing two movies with no written agreement that Bill Murray would come back to act in Ghostbusters. I guess that goes to show the level of power and assurance Mike Ovitz instilled in others. And Ghostbusters was a huge hit, of course. Mike Ovitz and his wife Judy were board members of St. John's Health Center, and each year they'd put on a black tie gala and screen a movie before general release. In 1984, they showed Ghostbusters. And nobody in the audience laughed. Mike Ovitz realized he shouldn't play comedies at these hoity-toity parties. When you read up on Ghostbusters' premiere at Westwood on June 7th of 84, and you see photos of the cast there, think about how most of the people in that audience didn't laugh at the movie. That's crazy. Then Ghostbusters received its general release the next day. Now let's talk business. Ovitz got his clients, Reitman, Murray, Aykroyd, and Ramis, collectively 30% of the gross from Ghostbusters. Since Ghostbusters earned a little under $300 million, at 30%, Those men got to share close to $90 million. Not in equal amounts, by the way, but who would complain? By the way, the $90 million doesn't factor in the movie's home media releases, TV airings, streaming, and then the cartoons and toys, which they all continued to get cuts of. CAA and the Brillstein Company got their cuts as well, of course. I figured out Brillstein, who later had to sell his shares to Warner Brothers, remember, had anywhere between 1% to 2.5%. Through Ovitz's deal, CAA got, and continues to get, as far as I know, around 3%. Remember, because he says he got his clients 30% of Ghostbusters, and CAA typically took 10% off of that, ergo, I believe 3% for CAA. Look online, I'll show you a visual on my Twitter sometime, at Ross RossMayRider.com. So yes, that also means that actually those principal players, Reitman, Murray, Ackroyd, and Ramis, didn't actually get the $90 million themselves because cuts were given to the Brillstein Company and CAA. I already mentioned that Frank Price was forced out of Columbia Pictures and became chairman of Universal, so Ovitz advised Reitman to take his business there for future movies. Legal Eagles was definitely greenlit by Frank Price at Universal, possibly Twins as well. Let's jump a few years to Ghostbusters 2. Of course, Ovitz represented all the same people again when Columbia Pictures changed management. Twice, actually. And the new president, Don Steele, pushed for a sequel. Mike Ovitz was happy to help make Ghostbusters 2 happen. In March of 1988, Ovitz reserved a private room at an upscale restaurant and hosted Columbia Brass, along with some key players again. Ivan, Dan, Harold, and yes, being friends with Bill Murray made Bill actually show up. Ovid's had the room decked out in Ghostbusters merchandise to try to stir up some good feelings Uh Ahem, especially in Bill, and to really drive the point home that another Ghostbusters could be a cash cow for everybody The deal for Ghostbusters 2 sounds very similar to the original, just with higher salaries up front Also, the principal talent collected 35% after the movie hit certain benchmarks, which it did Listen, whatever crap people want to give to Ghostbusters 2, it made money At around $215 million at the box office, this time the principal Ghostbusters players took home $75 million on the back end. Again, that $75 million split between themselves. Also, for whatever it's worth, Ovitz felt the movie was perfectly fine, and he was proud to help make another Ghostbusters happen. Hey, speaking of Ghostbusters 2, Mike's wife Judy is in the film, in the fancy restaurant scene. She's the woman with the blonde hair, When Ray waves his arm, he accidentally hits her with slime? That's Judy Ovitz. But Ghostbusters 2 wasn't even Mike Ovitz's biggest deal with Columbia Pictures in 88 and 89. No, in 1988, Coca-Cola, which had owned Columbia Pictures, was now selling off a lot of its shares in the company. Mike Ovitz, power broker to Hollywood, assisted negotiations where the Japanese company Sony purchased the American Columbia Pictures. I find that fascinating. Ovitz wasn't a Columbia executive. He just had a good relationship with Columbia, due in part from big productions like Ghostbusters, but here he got to be a part of a $3.5 billion sale to Sony and pocket millions for himself and CAA. In the book Columbia Pictures, Portrait of a Studio, it is suggested that parties at Columbia and Sony were interested in Ovitz becoming the studio's new chairman, but he declined. That was 89. We're entering the 90s now. Hey, one person I neglected in Ovitz's list of stars was a mutual friend with Bill Murray, David Letterman. Letterman famously did not have an agent, but he signed up with Ovitz in 1992 when NBC didn't give him The Tonight Show. Ovitz got him The Late Show at CBS with an opening fee of $40 million and Letterman owning the show. You could read The Late Shift by Bill Carter to learn more about that or watch the 1996 TV movie about it. Oddly enough, executive produced by Ivan Reitman, Joe Magic, and Dan Goldberg. Huh, a small world. Mike Ovitz is perfectly fine with the book and TV movie of Late Shift, and says, yeah, the way he's depicted fictionally is pretty darn close to the things he actually said to David Letterman in real life. Speaking of big paydays, monster hits and all that, I want to talk about Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park came together thanks to Ovitz. He was pals with, and represented, author Michael Crichton. Crichton described the plot of Jurassic Park, and Ovitz knew it was gold, and forwarded copies to Steven Spielberg and producer Kathleen Kennedy. Before the book came out, it was already a given that it was going to be a bestseller. In a perfect example of a packaged deal, Ovitz presented Jurassic Park, directed by Spielberg, produced by Kathleen Kennedy, to Spielberg's usual home at Universal. Universal had the choice to accept or reject the movie project, but no real leverage to alter it or bargain the price down. Universal accepted, understanding it was close to a given Jurassic Park would be a monster hit at any studio. Again, a package deal, everybody. But let's get to the end of this story. Mike Ovitz would finally quit being a talent agent, yes, even to Bill Murray, and become president of an entertainment company, becoming the kind of executive he had often negotiated with. In 1995, Mike Ovitz was president of the Walt Disney Company. Okay, This needs some explaining, because if you just look at his time there, this seems like a blip. I've introduced you to some of these figures before, as far back as the production of the movie Meatballs. Michael Eisner was friends with Mike Ovitz. They were even neighbors in Aspen, Colorado, when they took their family skiing, and they'd spend holidays together. So, they were close. Michael and his right-hand man Jeffrey Katzenberg had been over at Paramount. They made the Star Trek movie happen, and Katzenberg had bought Meatballs from Ivan Reitman. The Walt Disney Company poached Eisner and Katzenberg in 1984, making Eisner CEO while Katzenberg was put in charge of movie productions. Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Lion King, all our faves were coming out of this time while Katzenberg was the boss of production. Also in there was a new president for Disney, Frank Wells. I know, I know, confusing all these names. The point is, Disney had a CEO. That's Michael Eisner. The second most powerful person was the company president, That's Frank Wells. While Jeffrey Katzenberg was in charge of movies, so for the sake of argument, we'll call him the third most important person at Disney. According to Katzenberg, his boss Eisner told him, if Frank Wells is ever no longer at Disney, you'll become the new president. Well, guess what happened, everybody? Frank Wells died in a helicopter crash in 1994. The movie The Lion King is dedicated to him. This was all sad, but Jeffrey Katzenberg expected to be bumped up to Disney president. But guess what? Dun-dun-dun! Eisner betrays Katzenberg. (gasps) Eisner installs Mike Ovitz, talent agent extraordinaire, as the new president. A bitter Katzenberg tells Eisner, I'll get my revenge! To which he kinda does by founding DreamWorks with Steven Spielberg and David Geffen and making fun of Eisner with the movie Shrek. But yes, Eisner felt Mike Ovitz would make for a better president. But this didn't work out. Ovitz discovered that being president of Disney, at least in the mid-90s, wasn't as powerful or dynamic as being head of CAA. He was second in command to Eisner, who ignored everything Ovitz tried to accomplish and told other Disney executives to just not listen to him. This lasted until January of 97, when Eisner fired Ovitz. Ovitz left Disney with a $130 million severance package that Disney then sued to get back. In 2005, a judge upheld his severance. And that's where I'll leave things. Mike Ovitz is obviously rich. He didn't return to CAA, and in fact, there's some bad blood there. Think about it, he got to control that company for years, and now other people could finally wrest control of it. Eh, I'll tell you this little tidbit that illustrates this point. When he left in 1995, Mike Ovitz still owned the building CAA occupied. It's a really fancy building, by the way, designed by I.M. Pei. If you don't know that architect, I.M. Pei also designed the glass pyramid at the Louvre in Paris. Yeah, Ovitz is still very proud of this building, even today. But, my point. Ovitz quit CAA, but he owned the building, so CAA had to keep paying him rent. They moved out of his building, so he wouldn't be their landlord anymore. A lot of his former colleagues were suddenly bad-mouthing him all over town, and there's not a lot of people at CAA today who think fondly of Ovitz. Today, Mike Ovitz works in Silicon Valley, investing and advising others. He was instrumental in making Airbnb go national, then international. Yeah, he's largely responsible for Airbnb being as big as it is. And speaking of advising, to give you even more of an idea of his relationship with Bill Murray, Mike advised Bill and picked out his lawyers in both of Bill Murray's divorces in 1996 and 2008. But Mike Ovitz today, He's an art collector who owns original Picassos, among hundreds of other works. Oh, and remember his wife Judy? They separated in the late 90s, apparently on good terms, but remain married. Mike Ovitz is currently with fashion entrepreneur Tamara Mellon. Mike and Tamara can be found attending the same parties as Bill Murray today. It's neat how biographies on each person touches on someone we'll meet next. Let's talk about Frank Price. Born in 1930, he began as a scriptwriter and producer for television back in the 50s and 60s. He was one of the producers of NBC Matinee Theater, which adapted plays and literature into hour-long dramas. Working at Universal, he became in charge of television production, and he's the principal creator of the made-for-TV movie as well as TV miniseries. Think of a lot of the 70s TV concepts that were introduced by him with these formats. The Six Million Dollar Man, Battlestar Galactica, Columbo, Kojak, The Rockford Files. These were all either expensive productions or productions they wanted to test out first before committing to series, so Price's strategy was often to make it a TV movie and advertise it as a big event, and then check out the ratings and see how it fared. In 1978, Frank Price got the offer to become chairman of Columbia Pictures. There, he greenlit the Oscar-winning films Kramer vs. Kramer and Gandhi, as well as Tootsie and the Karate Kid, and of course he was chairman during Ivan Reitman's Stripes and Heavy Metal. Oh, and we shouldn't forget Space Hunter Adventures in the Forbidden Zone. Actually, we can forget it, but hey, it was obviously a Star Wars ripoff someone dreamt up that still made a couple million in profit. My main reason for bringing it up now is because it was directed by Lamont Johnson, an old pal of Frank Price's from NBC matinee theater. Lamont Johnson was usually directing prestige television, the kind that Frank Price helped pioneer. Johnson would even win two Emmys in the 80s, so while a sci-fi flick wasn't really Johnson's bag, Frank Price knew he could depend on him. Just thought I'd point this out again. But back to the main story. Ivan Reitman's success with Stripes, and the comedy stars Reitman said would be involved with Ghostbusters, obviously filled Frank Price with confidence on this Ghostbusters movie project. Ah, But then other executives heard that Columbia was producing this giant budget of a comedy, and for a whole year they were telling him, it's okay Frank, you can't win all the time. Price got this so often from his peers that he started to second-guess his decision, and was feeling awful about it at times. And then it all came together in the end. And a reminder, one last time, Bill Murray said he'd do Ghostbusters if Price greenlit The Razor's Edge. So off Bill flew around the world while Price had no written guarantee he'd get the actor back. Ghostbusters was a smash hit, we all know this, and Frank Price took pride in it along with his other successes. But wait, Price wasn't at Columbia anymore by the time the movie debuted in 1984. So what happened? To back up a bit, Columbia Pictures was owned by Coca-Cola. A principal owner of Columbia Pictures' stock was millionaire Herbert Allen Jr., who also owned a lot of coca cola stock as well. Herbert Allen didn't run Coke or Columbia. In fact, he lived in New York, so he wasn't about to manage a movie studio. But he could call a lot of shots at both companies. Herbert Allen apparently got along well enough with Frank Price. And why wouldn't he? Price had more box office successes than he had turkeys. But Columbia also had Francis, or Faye, Vincent. Faye Vincent, had gone to college with Herbert Allen, and they were really good fraternity friends. Faye Vincent got into disagreements with Frank Price over how to run Columbia. All through 1983, more and more of Price's power as chairman was taken away from him, including any influence over marketing. In other words, Faye Vincent, backed by Herbert Allen and Coca-Cola, had the ability to put money behind any movie they wanted or didn't want effectively controlling what movies would be successes. Frank Price was supposed to be in charge of movie productions and giving the green lights, but Faye Vincent was telling him he needed to take orders. So Frank Price left after Faye Vincent and Herbert Allen were making it difficult for him to do his job at Columbia. So Frank Price wasn't even with Columbia by the time Ghostbusters opened in 1984, but he still got the prestige of it having been a movie that he said yes to when every other executive had told him he had made a dumb decision but Frank Price was still in high demand, and he was welcomed back to his old home of Universal as its new chairman. Over there, he had another Oscar winner with Out of Africa, and he got Back to the Future over to Universal. That's right, if you're like me and think Ghostbusters and Back to the Future are two of your favorite movies, Frank Price was the executive who made both of them happen. How about that? I touched on this already with Mike Ovitz, but I like it that there's a personal touch even with these big productions. Part of the reason Mike Ovitz sent movie proposals to Frank Price first was because Ovitz respected Price. Frank Price was one of the best Hollywood execs who could look over a proposal and give a response, often in one day, and was the best executive for giving thoughtful notes. I mean, Ovitz sent Frank Price Stripes, the movie Tootsie with Dustin Hoffman and featuring Bill Murray, Ovitz sent Price Ghostbusters, which was approved in one meeting, then Frank Price was gone from Columbia Pictures and went over to Universal, and Mike Ovitz and Ivan Reitman followed suit. Reitman's next film was Legal Eagles, approved by Frank Price. Depending on how far in advance things were approved, Twins might have been approved by Price as well. I'm not sure on that one. And then Frank Price greenlit Howard the Duck. (coughs) But, you know, this kind of speaks to Frank Price's philosophy. He greenlit Ghostbusters based on the strength of who was involved. Similarly, he greenlit Howard the Duck because George Lucas was pushing it, and back then nobody wanted to lose a chance to work with George Lucas. In retrospect, yeah, that movie is a punchline, but back then George Lucas's name meant hit after hit after hit, so it made sense to work with him but Howard the Duck bombed, and it cost Frank Price's job at Universal. Frank Price went independent. Meanwhile, Sony purchased Columbia Pictures in 1990, with help from Mike Ovitz, remember. With Coca-Cola out of the movie picture business and no longer meddling at Columbia, stockbroker Herbert Allen Jr. and his troublesome pal Faye Vincent were no longer there. In fact, Faye Vincent took off and became the commissioner of Major League Baseball for a few short years, where he proceeded to piss off all the team's owners until they voted him out. That sounds like him. Columbia had been running through executives and needed stability, so they asked Frank Price to return in 1990. Price did, and greenlit Awakenings, Boys in the Hood, Prince of Tides, Bram Stoker's Dracula, and... Groundhog Day! I'm trying to do the radio thing, you remember, from the movie. Groundhog Day, directed by Harold Ramis. Frank Price went independent again in the 90s, and retired from Hollywood proper in 2001. Since then, he has been on boards and a proponent of teaching film arts and production, including University of Southern California's School of Cinema Television. In an industry where there's a lot of drama and hurt feelings, like with Mike Ovitz, former executive Frank Price sounds like a respected, pleasant person who mostly made solid decisions in movies and television. Thanks for listening. You know, I think this is helpful because I think a lot of us know about the creative history of Ghostbusters, but we don't really know about these business personalities as much or how they make a movie production happen. This was a lot of research for me to go through, but I think I've got a better picture of everyone involved now. This was an extra episode, but next up I'll be covering everything else about Ghostbusters that's not strictly the movie itself. I'll talk to you later, but for now we'd better split up. We can do more damage that way. Yay! I'm demanding a refund. The podcast was free. Well, then I should get double my money back.